that Sunday, I kept getting a phone call. I was I was doing a, a pet sitting job near my house and an unknown number kept coming up. And I thought that perhaps she was trying to get a hold of me or remind me or something like that. And I was like, I'm wedding dress shopping. I, you know, I'll call you back later. And I didn't answer it. So I'd gotten the phone call probably once, maybe midday and, you know, no voicemail. And Um, I had gotten another one while I was trying on my dresses. When we were leaving, I was driving on 285 and headed back to my house with my sisters in my car and got a phone call. I was like, this number keeps calling. It's this pet sitting job. Like, let me just answer it and, and, you know, get this over with. And so I answered it and it was her husband and his words were, Danielle has is gone. She is dead. And I said, what? He said, she's gone. She killed herself. Our stories are what make us unique, but they're also what connect us as human beings. It's time to stop talking and start listening. This is You Talk, I'll Listen with Shannon Chapman. According to a 2018 report from the CDC, suicide was the second leading cause of death for people between the ages of 10 and 34 and the 10th leading cause of death overall in the U.S. There were more than two and a half times as many suicides that year in the U.S. than homicides. And with all that's been going on in 2020, suicide rates are on the rise. But what happens to all those people who are left behind to grieve? My guest this week, Lindsay, is going to share her experience with this issue. Lindsay, what was your friend's name? And to give us some context, tell us how you guys met and what your relationship was like. Yeah. Um, so her name was Danielle. Uh, we had met because she actually replaced a position that I had left at a company when I left just before the recession and was going back to school. We knew that I was leaving, so I was able to train her and spend a good bit of time with her, and our personalities just clicked. And she and I were so very similar in a lot of ways that um, we just got along very swimmingly. And we, you know, kept up after the training was over and I had left the position, but she and I kept up and became uh, pretty close friends and, and maintained that relationship and friendship even after I had left. We were... Like I said, similar in personality where um, our kind of process and our way of thinking was very similar. Her personality was more of the type that was she would set a goal, she would achieve it. If she did not achieve it, she was very hard on herself and she was it was not acceptable. She would try and strive to do everything she could to get and achieve that goal. And not that I don't achieve goals, <laughs> but uh, I'm more of a, if it works out, that's fantastic. And if it doesn't, then that's okay too kind of personality. And that was kind of where she and I differed. 
but she um, had just moved here from up north and had gotten the job where she replaced my position and had a little bit of a hard time, you know, trying to find work, especially since it happened like right before the recession and eventually ended up getting laid off from that job and had a series of times where the job just didn't work out. You know, she it was great and she gave 100% wherever she was. It just so happens that whenever you were changing jobs around that time, last in, first out, whenever you have to do layoffs. So she had the bad fortune of having been laid off from the one company and then going to work for another company that also then started to eventually struggle and, you know, having been laid off because of that as well. You know, it wasn't due to anything of her own lack of accountability or ability to work, but she just had a series of, it was just that time in 2008, 2009 that just, you know, didn't, it just didn't work out. And then eventually she ended up taking some time off not to be a stay-at-home mom, but she got pregnant and had her first little girl. And so we had bonded over that as well. Like I said, her, our, how our personalities were a little different was she was like, okay, this is what's lining up with, you know, jobs. Maybe it's time to start a family. Let's seize this opportunity and, and maybe it's time to start a family. And so she was like, okay, we're going to get pregnant. And that's what she did. <laughs> it was very, like I said, her personality was very much, she set a goal, she attained the goal. And that was kind of what she was used to. So they set out to have a baby and they got pregnant and they had a baby, a little girl. Were there signs that something was going on with her or did she tell you that she was having suicidal thoughts? There there were some signs that I had noticed. She and I, again, we would talk mostly on phone calls. I mean, this was back a while ago when you did text, but not as often as you do now. I think people kind of text for everything nowadays, but we um, you know, had had several phone calls. We would have late night phone calls. Whenever she had Brooke, she had a very difficult labor. She was actually had to be induced early and she internalized it a lot. And so she had a difficult delivery where she was induced and ended up being in the hospital almost a week. And the day that she actually had her, she was ready. She was, um, I mean, just about pulling out the IV saying, I'm I'm done. This is not, this doesn't feel right. She's not ready to come. I don't like this. I am not feeling okay with this. Then her water broke and she went into labor and several hours later, you know, she had her daughter. So that was a difficult time. She had been in the hospital for almost five days when they're constantly checking on you. You don't get any sleep. So you're sleep deprived on top of you are about to have a baby and you've never done that before. You're about to get this thing that's been living inside of you out <laughs> and it's a human and you're responsible for it. And there's so much stress and excitement surrounding that. But also when you are sleep deprived, when it is not the ideal situation, when you don't feel good, when you're in a hospital setting and you're going on your fourth day of, you know, maybe only, you know, eight to 10 hours of sleep in four days, it is not ideal. So she had had a very stressful labor and delivery. After she came home, she had a lot of follow-up visits. Her daughter was, I don't want to use the word colicky because to be quite honest, I'm a mom. I 
don't exactly know what that means besides a fussy baby. (laughs) So let's just say she was a fussy baby and she ended up, again, internalizing, you know, feeling like things weren't going the way that they should have. She didn't feel okay just kind of getting by and not meeting all these things that she had researched prior to giving birth. You know, you've got to get the baby on a schedule. The baby has to be on a schedule. And if you don't get the baby on the schedule, nothing's going to work. That's what she believed. And so she had a very difficult time getting her on a schedule. Just in general, you know, about breastfeeding and the pressures that are surrounding giving birth to this little human and people pressuring you that breast is best. And that is a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure where you feel like I am supposed to feed this little person. And if I can't, this little person is not going to survive and I'm failing and I'm failing them. And again, she internalized a lot of that. And she did journal. She journaled even before she got pregnant. There was a lot surrounding, you know, kind of her feeling a bit like she just wasn't doing enough. And in reality, that was only her internal conversation. In reality, she was an excellent mother. She was doing the best that she could. I cannot even imagine now having had a child of my own, the stress that she was under giving birth after being so sleep deprived and feeling like nothing was going right and just kind of getting off on the wrong foot with how you're holding yourself up to whatever standards it is that you've set prior to having this child. So she and I were having conversations and she was saying things to me and I was picking up on some things like she couldn't wait until her husband would get home to be able to take the baby and give her a break and that she would find herself looking out the window to wait to see like holding you know the baby and looking out the window so anxious for him to get home to give her some relief so that she could either be by herself or get some help or whatever and her husband he is a great father he's a great husband he was by no means you know working 15 or 16 hour days or anything like that abandoning her he had taken time off while she was in the hospital being induced he you know i mean he's a wonderful wonderful father and was a very loving husband she was just feeling like that that time where she was by herself and it was just her and the baby she was not doing enough she couldn't wait to not have that responsibility off of her shoulders and i think we've all felt that to some point and there's a difference in okay when the baby goes to sleep i am <laughs> off the clock. And it feels like you're off the clock, even though you know you're never off the clock. (laughs) It's not a job you can punch out of. You do kind of feel a little bit of that like, okay, I can process either if it's the baby's down for a nap, I can process whatever just happened in the last two hours or the baby's down for the night. I can process what happened today. I'm off the clock. And she could not wait for that. As well as, you know, her, she had mentioned to me that she just didn't feel like she was giving her child what she needed. She felt inadequate. And that's, you know, summarizing her words, but she felt inadequate. And so I had recognized these things and she and I were going to lunch. I was very excited to see her and her daughter. And we were going to lunch that Monday. And I had asked someone that was very close to me who had had five children of her own. And I had said, 
these are some things that I'm noticing with my friend and I don't really know what to say or what to do. I, she was my first friend that had had a child that I was that close with. And so I didn't really know what to say, what to do, how to react. I knew I wanted to do something to help her, but I couldn't figure out on my own what that was. And so I had asked for some advice and my friend had let me know, here's some suggestions on some things that you can do. You can offer to come and say, you know, go to her house and just spend the afternoon with her and the baby or spend the afternoon with the baby and give her some time away. And and some great suggestions that I utilized myself when I had my daughter, you know, just a couple of years ago. And so I had recognized some of those things and kind of had a plan together. So she and I were supposed to go to lunch on a Monday. And this was the week before leading up to that weekend that I had asked for the advice that she and I had talked. We had set plans and that I had kind of worked out how to bring up the conversation. And I was so nervous to try to bring it up because I wasn't sure how she was going to react. I wasn't sure. And suicide was nowhere whatsoever in my line of thinking. It wasn't even a in creeping in the back of my mind. It was not even an option or something that I was worried about or thought that she might have even been considering. And so I was just, you know, nervous on how she was going to react, how she would feel about me bringing it up and just wanting to kind of ease into the situation and the conversation with her. When you did have that conversation, what did it go like? I didn't have that conversation. We were supposed to go to lunch that Monday, and she had decided that she was at her breaking point. And I remember it was the weekend that I had bought my wedding dress. She was going to be at my wedding. And it was a year and a few days before uh, the actual wedding date. And I was wedding dress shopping that weekend and had that Monday off. That Sunday, I kept getting a phone call. I was was doing a, a pet sitting job near my house and an unknown number kept coming up. And I thought that perhaps she was trying to get a hold of me or remind me or something like that. And I was like, I'm wedding dress shopping. I, you know, I'll call you back later. And I didn't answer it. So I'd gotten the phone call probably once, maybe midday and you know, no voicemail. And um, I had gotten another one while I was trying on my dresses. When we were leaving, I was driving on 285 and headed back to my house with my sisters in my car and got a phone call. I was like, this number keeps calling. It's it's this pet sitting job. Like, let me just answer it and, and, you know, get this over with. And so I answered it and it was her husband. And his words were, Danielle has is gone. She is dead. And I said, what? He said, she's gone. She killed herself. Even though the car is not a room, the room kind of closes in on you. And I don't exactly remember what happened outside of, I remember I'm driving on 285 and I took my foot off the gas. I didn't slam on the brakes, thankfully, but I took my foot off the gas and I said, no. No, like I remember saying no over and over again. And my sister in the passenger seat somehow coaxed me 
or maybe she took the wheel. I don't really remember. And we were able to pull over on the side of the road. It was right by Cobb Galleria. And this is a spot that forever, every time I drive past it, I think about this moment. And I don't always get emotional about it, but it's always that thing that's there. We pull over on the side of the road and Chris hung up. He couldn't take it. Whatever was going on in the car, I don't exactly remember. He couldn't take it. My sister, somehow I got out of the car. She got out of the car and they talked me into just scooting over. And I think I got out of the car and I think I maybe felt nauseous, felt like I was going to throw up was just in total disbelief. And then my one sister, Jessica, got behind the wheel and I got back in the car. And my sister, Tate, was back in the back seat with me. And I remember the next thought that I had was, this is a joke. This is like the worst joke. And he thinks he's being funny and he thinks that I'm mad. So I'm going to call him back. Like the things that you go through whenever you hear something like this, like this is in hindsight, it's like, this is really the thing that went through my head. This, I for sure was convinced this was a terrible, terrible joke. That's not funny. And I tried calling him back and he didn't answer. I'm not crying anymore. I'm very like, I've figured this out. This is, this is the reality of the situation. I figured this out. It's a bad joke. He thinks I'm pissed. I am a little upset with him, but it's going to be okay. And I called my husband and said, Chris called and he said that Danielle is dead and it's a terrible joke and I am trying to call him back, but I think he thinks I'm mad at him. So he won't answer the phone. I don't remember what Harry's reaction was. Probably not in agreement with me of what was going on. He probably was like, oh, this is not good. I told him, I said, but you know, and he's like, well, where are you? And I said, I'm in the back of the car. and. Jessica's driving us back to the house and he said, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to come home. Uh, I'll meet you there. I remember that. And so I think maybe he might've called my sister's phone, perhaps. I'm not really sure. I, I remember trying to call Chris and then probably a few minutes after that thinking, this isn't a joke. I'm really thinking about that. That's not really what is going on here. And then it kind of hit me. And then it was oh, I knew something was wrong. I knew something was wrong. Oh, wow. Oh, gosh. I don't know. I don't know what to do. I knew something was wrong. I've got to figure out how to go back. I've got to figure out how to go back and fix it. I got to fix it. I knew something was wrong. Why didn't I just say something? And it was really hard to get out of that, even though that that thought and that process only lasted maybe a couple hours. And it was the second thing that came out of my mouth. The first was that she was gone, and the second was that I knew something was wrong. It took a bit to kind of get out of that. That was like a... It was like a hamster wheel of like, stop thinking that, stop thinking that. And how my personally, how my brain thinks and how I react to things like this is, okay, what am I going to do? What am I going to do to make myself feel better? What am I going to do to make other people feel better? I have got to prioritize 
whatever it is that's going to get me not feeling this way and making other people feel better. That is number one priority. I finally, later that afternoon, got a hold of Chris and I asked him, what can I do? What do you want me to do? They hadn't lived here for very long, so they didn't have a huge friend group that you would call in a situation like this. You know, you have people that you're casually friends with and all that, but, you know, that wasn't them to have just, you know, gobs and gobs of friends, you know, but especially in a situation like this and their family was states away. I mean, just very, very far away. And so, you know, I said, what do you want me? What What do you need me to do? What do you need? And he said, can you please come over? And I had, I said, of course, I didn't even think twice about it. I didn't know how she had done it. I didn't know what I was walking into. And then the weird thing that your brain starts doing when you're left to your own thoughts. And I was like, okay, well, then I started thinking about like, well, how would, you know, how, how, how would she do it? What am I going to be doing? Am I going to be cleaning up something? Am I going to be watching the baby? Am I going to be just sitting there staring at a wall? How am I going to prepare myself to walk into this situation? And I didn't want to ask any questions at all. So it just, in that, in that time, it just felt more comfortable for me to just let my mind just go wherever it needed to go without any really sense of reality or what would be, you know, realistic. So, uh, you know, we went over to their house and I was taking care of, of the baby and I was doing anything I could to make other people feel better. There was another set of friends that were there um, that we had never met before. And she and I became very close in those first 10 minutes of meeting. It was like, okay, here we are in the trenches together. We're going to do this. And she had just had a baby, luckily. <laughs> so she was she was able to help me like, this is how you put pajamas on a six-week-old. Because I felt like I was like, this this little baby is so tiny. And I... I have to put pajamas on her. Like this is the most important thing in the world right now is getting this little baby her pajamas. And she was just screaming her head off. And I was like, I must be doing it wrong. And she was so kind and and walking me through that, something so simple. But in that moment, that was the most important thing. It was like, this is the worst situation. This is the worst day of my life. I just need to get these pajamas on this little baby. That night we were there until about midnight his parents were actually coming to visit and they were uh, in Alabama whenever and he had not told them. He had told them that there was something wrong, but he had not told them what exactly was going on. So they did not know that she had passed away until they got there. And so we said that we would stay and take care of the baby so that he could talk to his parents and let them know what was going on. The, the next thing that I remember is just coming home that night and not sleeping at all, just not crying, not sleeping, not even being angry, just wondering what led her to do this exactly. Put yourself in her shoes. Why did she think this was the best option? And I didn't have that answer for a really long time. She didn't leave a note. What we found out later was that she had planned it, but not planned it long-term. There were things that she had been doing even probably a couple days before that I, in my opinion, I don't think she even realized what she was doing, that she was prepping for her departure. And there's some things that kind of click into 
it would have made sense because she was going to be going back to work soon or she was trying to find a job and like, like buying, she was breastfeeding, but she bought formula, things like that. And, and the morning that she did it, it was a Sunday morning when you're sleep deprived, you have a newborn, you, there's a trick about remember which breast to feed off of. So you wear a bracelet on that wrist and you move it over so that you remember either which one you did last or which one you do next. She had taken that off. She didn't leave any notes, but there were just things that were done that she, things that she never took off or things that she, you know, never would have done or things that were, have been in a certain place that were no longer in their place that she kind of did intentionally. And she, had looked up, I believe, if I remember correctly, she had looked up ways and she had hung herself is how she had, is how, how she had done it. It was finding out way after the days leading up to kind of what happened the morning of, and then I remember us all being so grateful that she didn't hurt the baby because in postpartum depression, a lot of times that does happen. It doesn't always go that way. And at first, I was like, of course she wouldn't hurt the baby. She was the most wonderful mother I've ever seen in my entire life. And then I was like, oh, she didn't know that. She had no idea. That's kind of how this happened. She didn't know how good of a mother she was. She needed to hear that. Probably from me. I'm sure she heard it from her husband. We could have said it a million and one times, and it probably wouldn't have been enough. She, I think in her mind, thought that this was the only thing that she could do to help her baby. She felt so inadequate and internalized that so much that it's the most selfish thing. Suicide is the most selfish thing that you can do. But when you are in that much pain, I would imagine it feels like the only way out. And it feels like the only thing that she ever did for herself was this. And that's not to say that that's what she should have done. She shouldn't have. She shouldn't have. She shouldn't have. Everyone needs her on this planet. And while I don't know that I would ever say or feel like it's okay that she did it because it's not okay that she did it, I can understand how she got to that point and how that was the only one of the only things she ever did for herself. She was in so much pain that in her mind, it was the only relief she could get. And it was the, I think, and it sounds so weird to say, but the best thing that she thought she could do for her child because she felt so inadequate. We will never know. Like I said, she didn't leave a note. We will never know for sure. This is speculation. This is in me being close with her, how I feel like she might have felt and and some of the reasons why she did it. Who knows if that's me projecting if I were in that situation. To be honest, I've never had suicidal thoughts. So this is all speculation on my part, but I feel like in knowing her and knowing how she was not a selfish person whatsoever. This is one of the only few and last things that she ever did truly just for herself. I tend to think that if someone dies and that a person has been sick for a while that you may have time to do some preparation for when that time comes. But when someone dies unexpectedly or it happens all of a sudden, that could be earth shattering. When something like this happens, what do you do? How do you pick up the pieces? 
I have a great support system and people were constantly checking on me. In the days after, I threw myself into got to get stuff done, got to help out other people, got to do whatever her husband and, and his family and, and her family needs. So I actually, um, he went back with his parents just a few days after it happened. And he knew immediately that he did not want to be in the house, that he wanted to sell it, but he probably, the quickest way would be to rent it. And so I went over, another friend and I went over and we cleaned the house and I packed up all of her clothes and I got rid of and put away all of their personal effects for them to bring over by the real estate agent who had sold the house to them to come over and do pictures and get it on, on the market for rent as soon as possible. And that Wednesday, I stayed at home, got some things done around my own house. I had kind of, for the most part, stopped crying at that point constantly. Again, people were checking on me, but it was just more like, I'm okay. I've, you know, it's, I'm okay. This is what I'm doing. And it was more of just like pushing through and doing and just doing things that I'm sure in my mind was just not letting me sit and think about it at that point in time. It was just keep going, keep going, keep going. And then that Thursday, I had tried to go back to work. And I had moments where I would be by myself and my mind would just wander and I would just start breaking down. And so I was like, okay, here, here it comes. And so that Thursday I left work and just came home and just laid the bed, stared at the ceiling for two hours and then slept for six hours, uh, which was probably the most sleep I'd gotten the whole week. And then just had a really good, long, ugly cry that I call ugly cry. Just with my husband holding me and just letting me cry and say whatever just fell out of my mouth, you know, like I knew and why did she do it? And I wasn't angry at her. I was frustrated that she didn't ask for help at the time, you know, ever since I have, you know, I understand why and I, and I don't feel anger or anything like that towards her, but, you know, and even the, the little silly things like, didn't she see my my Facebook post that it was a year and two days from our wedding? Like she was supposed to be in my wedding. How dare she? The ridiculous things that you just, you just let me, let just let things come out of my mouth that, you know, didn't make any sense and just get it out. And then that Friday, things started to kind of click back and go back to somewhat normal. I didn't really talk about it and start to uncover those feelings and what happened and start to really like take it, take the things out of the box. I had put them in, in my head and start looking at them until probably six months to a year after my wedding. So this is almost two years after it's happened. And it was when I started to help out her husband, he decided to come back and move back to Georgia. And um, he had met somebody that he had, had known his whole life and had no intentions whatsoever of falling in love with this person. But that's what ended up happening. This was the worst days of his life. And that person was there and helped him get through that. And it's now his wife. They were not married. They had just started to date and he was coming back to Georgia and 
was really worried about letting me, you know, about telling me that he had met somebody because it was only maybe eight or nine months, I think maybe after it had happened. And he was very worried and nervous. And I was like, I just, I mean, I know I like as much as I loved and, and cared for her, she left. She's not here anymore. I have no right to tell you that you need to hold a spot in your heart for her. She's not coming back. You, that's not fair for you to not get to move on. And I cannot even imagine how alone and heavy you must feel having had a child, thinking that this person was going to be there for forever. And she was gone so soon after having a child and your life has been completely turned upside down. That is not, I, I can't imagine what that feels like. So that's not that I don't, I'm not judging. I'm, I think that you are a deserving person. You deserve love. You deserve friendship. You deserve everything. And if this person is helping you with that, that's not for me to say it's right or wrong. I'm happy for you. You deserve everything. It is not fair what happened, but she's gone. And not to say that it's just up and move on, but you do what you need to do to help you move on. You have a child that you're responsible for. You got to do what you've got to do to take care of yourself. And I, if you found this person, I'm so glad and I'm happy to meet her because a lot of people would be terrified of walking into that situation. And she wasn't. And she is a wonderful, kind person. And she is Brooke's mother. They talk about Danielle to her, but she's the one who who has raised her and she's her mother because that's the situation. You know, that's, that's how it ended up playing out. She's a wonderful mother and it, it never once to her felt like it was her job or her responsibility or that she was trying to fill Danielle's shoes. It was just that this is how life played out. And I'm so glad that they didn't hold back on letting other people judge the situation when they had no idea. Um, that kind of took me aback. I couldn't believe people's reactions, even close friends that I had that were, oh, he's moved on so fast or, oh, already. And I would think that's not your business. You have no idea what he's dealing with. That's not your business. Unless you have been in his shoes, you need to shut your mouth. And I don't want to hear it. <laughs> so that probably didn't handle that well with a few people. <laughs> um, but that's that's how I felt. And everybody and my family members who knew then after I had smarted off or snapped it, someone else knew not to bring it up to me in that manner, still were probably thinking, it's weird that she's really good friends with his new wife. <laughs> she's close. I watched Brooke while they had their second child. You know, it was just, we went through this horrible, terrible thing together and I am here for you, whatever you need. Like this is the craziest situation that you've stepped into. It's like whatever I could do to help, I would. And I think that kind of helped me process a little bit. But with all of that going on, people kept saying, you've handled this really well you don't, you know, are you having any issues with depression or anything like that? You know, my, my sisters and my best friend and my husband, you know, would all ask me and check in with me. And I was like, I mean, I don't think so. I think I'm okay, but I couldn't say for sure. So I sought out a therapist who I love 
and just kind of sat down and started to, like I said, it was about almost two years, just over two years after it happened. And I sat down and started to unpack some of the things I had packed away and took a look at them and made sure that I really was okay with with what happened afterwards and okay with myself and everything that I did before and after. Very clearly defining the worst day in your life. Everything is then everything that happened before that point and everything that happened after that point. Um, And I had lost family members before, but the grief of someone being ripped from your life so unexpectedly is something that I've now had to deal with a second time. And I have never really had never felt that before. I spent every summer with my grandparents from the time that I was two until I was 15. So with my grandparents and spending the summers with them, you go to a a lot of funerals. (laughs) My grandparents were in their mid to late 60s when I was got a little bit older. I mean, you go to a lot of funerals as a kid. I've even joked that there's a particular funeral home up in North Georgia that we spent a lot of time at in the back room that like, oh, I know the kitchen. Or even when I was a kid, I was like, oh man, another funeral. We're going to have some really good pound cake. You know, like that's the thing that a seven-year-old says. Like I, I was familiar with death. I had lost my grandparents on my dad's side. I had lost lots of great aunts and uncles and things like that. They were all expected to pass away. I had never dealt with somebody being ripped from my life the way that Danielle was. And I, from that point on, the thing that I did discover, and I don't know if it was just kind of a realization that I came to on my own, or maybe my therapist kind of helped talk me through kind of like, okay, let's recap what happened, even though it's two years out. Let's recap what happened. At that point, I then became more afraid of losing those close to me. And that is one of my biggest fears because I was like, I survived losing Danielle. I don't know that I could ever do that again. If I lost my husband, if I lost one of my sisters who I'm so very close to, someone who's not quote unquote supposed to die, like you're supposed to lose your parents. You're supposed to lose people older than you. Even if someone is going through cancer and they're going through treatment and let's say even though that person is not quote unquote older, there's a process that you have time to get used to the idea. But when someone is just ripped from your life, It is something that I have feared I would not survive again. And I just don't know how life would go on if if I lost someone like that. Again, that was the hardest thing I'd ever had to do in my whole life. And I had to get over that because if I hadn't, I would never have had my daughter. And even though I had some little mini freak outs (laughs) after I dropped her off at daycare for the first time where I started thinking, okay, someone else is responsible for this little human who was the most important thing in the entire world to me. If something were to happen to her, I don't know how I'm going to survive that. So maybe I should just stay at home with her and never leave the house. And it was just that moment of, okay, you cannot think that way. You got to talk yourself out of that. You got to dig yourself out of that. That's not how you can live life. And it was immediately going back to how I felt in the car on 285 and knowing you can't go back in time. Whatever's happening in that moment, it's permanent. And I have to dig out of that feeling and remember that life goes on and you'll be okay and you'll figure it out, whatever it is. And ultimately, it's best just not to think about that. (laughs) It is a reality of life that you lose people, but let's just not harp on them. 
it was therapy and a great support system that really helped me get through that and kind of figure out, did I handle it properly? Do I have any unchecked emotions left? Is there something else I need to do? Is there some self-care that I need to do to help me make sure that I am healing from this? And time makes things easier. Time doesn't, personally, I don't necessarily believe that time heals everything, but time makes things easier. And having gone through this situation, I have another very close friend that lost a family member to suicide. The day it happened, she thought of me and was like, Lindsay, how do I, how do I get through this? And it was just kind of talking through her and saying, you need to figure out what works for you, but here's some things that I have learned from it. And if you can think about these things, or at least start to just kind of slowly open the thought of getting in there and figuring out not necessarily why it happened, but knowing that everything's going to be okay. And that putting a little bit of time between you and the and what happened, that traumatic event makes things a little bit easier. But something I had said to Chris after Danielle passed, he said, you know, I had a good day today, but I feel really guilty saying that. I feel like I shouldn't be having a good day. And I said, then don't say you had a good day. Say I had a better day than yesterday. And that's okay. And that doesn't feel like, oh, I had a great day. Oh, I need to feel bad about that. Let yourself and allow yourself to say, I had a better day today. It didn't hurt so much today. And that was kind of what I explained to my friend Every day is going to be a little bit less painful and a little bit less all about that thing. You're going to start to notice the normal things in life again. So I'm I'm so grateful that I was able to help her through that most vulnerable moment in her life where my heart just broke for her. And I even thinking about how much she was hurting makes me emotional. What are some of the things that you learned were realized just from going through this situation in general? Some things that I learned is that eventually everything will be okay. Let's take the year 2020. <laughs> let's, let's take this dumpster fire <laughs> that we've been living in. Some crazy things have happened to me this year that had I not already gone through my first worst day of my life, I think that helped keep some things in my toolbox to deal with the next worst day of my life that happened this year, which was having to tell my husband and my sister-in-law that their mother had passed away. And that was earlier this year in August. She passed away very suddenly. Her husband had gone into hospice and she died four days later of a heart attack. She was not sick other than she said said that she wasn't feeling well the day before, she was not sick. As, as odd as it may seem, obviously her husband had gone into hospice. We were not expecting her to pass away. And that was the new worst day of your life. And a very, very difficult thing that I had to do that somebody, when somebody dies, somebody has to be the person to deliver that news. I had never imagined that I would be doing that to my husband and my sister-in-law about my mother-in-law. And Having gone through everything with Danielle and lost her so suddenly, I still had some things in, like I said, in my toolbox to figure out, okay, how did you handle this last time? A way for you to process, 
is for you to do things for others and not to do it in a way that you're running away from your own emotions or that you're trying to hide from your own emotions. But in this first part right here, the best way for you to feel better is to try to help out other people to make them feel better. I realized that after I had gone through everything with Danielle and recognized that that actually helped me get to the point where I was and how I, in my own opinion, and not to say that my therapist confirmed it, but we did discuss this and whether or not I had handled the situation the way that I should. Was I leaving anything um, untouched or undiscovered or unprocessed, any emotions unprocessed? Am I going to, you know, even though it was two years down the road when I started therapy, am am I going to just have a breakdown one day? I mean, I think that's kind of what people were thinking. They were like, man, Lindsay really did a lot. And this is a very unusual situation. And she's still in it. She seems okay. Is that normal? Is it normal for somebody to process this kind of grief this way? And not just have everything fall apart. And I am so glad to say, yes, I think so. Other things that I've learned is suicide, no matter how much you think you could have tried harder, you don't know whether it's going to change the outcome had you acted on whatever it was. Since Danielle's passing, the thing that I feel like has propelled me in life and has allowed me to have a much greater empathy for so many more people than I ever would have prior to going through that is that do the uncomfortable thing. There is a quote, I can't remember where I saw it or who said it, but take the cold bath briefly, do the hard thing, get it out of the way. I was worried about how Danielle was going to receive me suggesting to her that something wasn't right and to ask her about it. I don't know that had I just in that conversation where we set that lunch date, if I had said, Danielle, something's not right. Are you okay? You seem really sad. And I want to talk to you about that. And I want to come right now and sit at your house until you feel better. If that means I'm moving in for two days or a week, that's what I'll do. I could have done that. And I don't know it would have changed the outcome from here on out. In the off chance, it could make a difference with someone. I'm not going to get mired down in how are they going to receive this? How awkward is it going to be? Am I going to hurt their feelings? I try to approach whatever it is in a very kind and empathetic manner so that they don't feel like I'm judging them or attacking them. But at my work, we have what we call around the worlds where you go around and you talk to everybody and find out what they do at the company, a little bit about them personally and their story. And it's just kind of throw everything out there. And even with the interns who are only there with us for one semester, I always let them know you can come to me for any questions whatsoever. I'll determine if it's appropriate, inappropriate, funny, serious, whatever. But I can tell you a list of questions that I've received before are all the way from, is my finger broken? Because I'm the resident mom in the office. (laughs) To, how do I get hired at, at your company? To, I got into a really huge fight with my wife and I don't understand what she wants. I had recognized that the employee was having a really bad day and seemed really upset. And so I said, hey, you seem like you're having a rough day. Let's go talk about it. Just, and just sit there and listen. 
just let them talk about it and not wait for, oh man, he looks like he's upset. What do I ask him? Do I ask him what's wrong? Do I just go up and say, hey, you're in a bad mood. You need to get in a better mood because you're making everybody else pissed off. No, just go ahead and do whatever. And I have found that when people feel that you're not judging, that you're coming from a place of honest empathy and caring, it will turn out okay. That conversation will turn out okay. And let's say it doesn't turn out okay. Well, I'm going to go to sleep that night knowing that I did what I should have because I don't want to ever have to live my life with regrets. I could say, yes, I definitely regret not having that conversation with Danielle sooner. But just as much as I could say that I regret it, I also know it might not have changed the outcome. And I can't let myself feel the guilt of that and the weight of that for the rest of my life because it's an unknown. You can't live in the unknown. The best thing that I figured out I can do is to just not wait next time. Just say it. I stick my foot in my mouth a lot, (laughs) but I laugh about it and I move on. And I've had some difficult conversations with people and I don't regret any of them, not a single one of them. And that is a huge gift that I received from Danielle unintentionally, whether she has any idea that she taught it to me or not, I don't know. But that is a huge gift that I received from her is the ability to just get it out, reach out to that person, do the thing that you want to do so that you can say that you did try your best. And no, you can't control the outcome and that that's okay. That's okay. Lindsay, do you have any other thoughts that you would like to get out? Because I feel like you answered all the rest of my questions. Not to do like a serious PSA about suicide, but if you think that there is somebody who is seeming depressed or is mentioning suicide, there are a lot of resources out there that people can reach out to that are anonymous. There is a lot of shame surrounding suicide. And I think that is absolutely ridiculous. There should be no shame attached to something as serious as someone taking their own life or attempting to take their own life. If you think someone is contemplating suicide, check in with them, ask them how they're feeling. Do you need some help? Do you need some resources for you to reach out and get that help? If you are thinking about suicide or you feel like someone or the world is better off without you, they are not. The world is always a better place with you in it. Suicide is not the answer. I understand how people are in so much pain that they feel like it's their only option but it's not. You can find someone to talk to. It's okay that you don't feel great. Everybody has days like this and you are not alone. You are not alone. You can talk to somebody. You can talk to me. I'm a complete stranger, but I'll listen. Sometimes people need to be heard and they need to feel important and worthy. And talking about how you feel, no matter how dark, or sad or upset you are is scary, but it'll be okay. That's super powerful. 
I do appreciate you talking to me about this because it's a super tough topic to talk about. Um, And my condolences to you and your family for your losses. Thank you, Lindsay. Stay tuned for the mic drop moment. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And guess what? It's free. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Because of the nature of the topic, Lindsay's story was hard to listen to. However, with so many people dealing with this issue, it was a necessary conversation. Suicide is not admirable or helpful. Danielle's death did not help anyone. It left a husband without a wife, a child without a mother, a friend without a friend, and all these people with a mess to clean up as they try to reconstruct their lives amid intense pain. In episode six, Josh talked about his struggle with identity because he didn't know his biological mother, despite having a very loving mother, like Brooke. What if Brooke develops issues relating to her identity or her mother's death because of this? And Danielle will never get to watch Brooke grow and accomplish things or meet her grandchildren because of the decision she made to take her own life. Lindsay strikes me as a nurturer, so it makes sense that doing things for others was what helped her get through this tough time. She also mentioned therapy as being important because it helped identify and face her feelings about what happened so she could figure out how to deal with them. Not many women talk about postpartum depression, but there are more than 3 million cases in the U.S. each year. Though not a severe case, I dealt with this issue myself. And the thing is, I didn't even realize anything was wrong until my sister-in-law said that I didn't seem like myself. It took someone in my support system to have a conversation with me to help me see my symptoms and go to the doctor and get help. So what Lindsay said about not being afraid to say what you need to say to the people you love really resonated with me. If my sister-in-law had never said anything, I could have been suffering in silence. I think the most important thing is that you are approaching that person out of genuine love and concern. And even if the words don't come out right, most times that person can sense that. If you or someone you know is dealing with what we discussed in this episode, check the show notes for resources and help. If you enjoyed this episode, check out episodes one through seven and subscribe or follow you talk on your favorite podcast app so you won't miss what's to come. Grace and blessings. Blessings.